0: We're going to continue in the Gospel of Matthew this evening. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, open up to chapter 18. We're going to make our way from verse 15 all the way through verse 35, which is a lot of verses. We have a lot of text to cover. It just didn't make sense to break it up in any other way for me tonight. And so it's all sort of about one big concept. I think that this is one of the most uh, important and profound sections in all of the scriptures, and I think it's one of Jesus's like clearest teachings on how things how things should be in the church and for his vision for the church. Um, And if I haven't made enough bold statements already, I think that this is one of the least obeyed teachings collectively in the church as a whole, Um, and because because of that, I'm pretty sure that every single one of us here has either contributed to and or felt the consequences of the failure to listen to Jesus and do what he says here. I have failed to do this. I have obeyed it wrong thinking that I was obeying it. Uh, and I know maybe I've hurt some people in this room, um, but it's a, it's a heavy, important passage. Um, this passage is for you if you've ever sinned. Ever known someone, thanks, Gage. Uh, if you've ever known someone in the church who has sinned or have ever seen someone drift away or walk away from the Lord, ever been hurt by someone in the church, if you've ever had someone confront you or attempt to uh, bring your attention to some sin in your life, or if you've ever been the one to do the confronting for somebody, if you've ever been reconciled with somebody um, in the church, um, or attempted to be reconciled with. Uh, if any of those things sound familiar, then this passage is for you, which is pretty, probably all of us. So we're gonna read um, just verses 15 through 20 right now. Chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Um, It so happens that in this section of scripture, at least how I have, uh, how it has been explained to me for a while, um, I think that we, maybe have some unlearning to do about a, a couple parts of it. So I'm not trying to be new or unconventional just for the sake of it, but I think there's some important things to clarify about how, how we may have um, read this verse before. Starting with the first verse in 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So the first thing I wanna point out, I think is kind of a big deal. There's an immediate textual variant. Um, The NIV says, if your brother sins, go point out their fault. Uh, The ESV says, if your brother sins against you. Now that's a pretty big difference to me, if your brother sins in general, or if your brother or sister sins against you. If you look at a bunch of different translations, I think you'd find that most include the against you, implying that this passage is primarily about personal conflict with people in the church um, when someone wrongs you. And that's, again, how I have primarily understood this passage for years. I read the ESV for a long time. And so that's probably why. Um, The best and earliest manuscripts of Matthew do not actually have the words against you. If you want to nerd out on it a little bit after the sermon, I can explain to you like why I, I think it might've happened, why someone included the words against you but I don't think that they're original to Matthew, so I think what is here in the NIV is accurate. If your brother or sister sins in general, not just against you, but just in general. To me, that makes sense and is important. The previous passage, uh, all of Matthew 18, uh, and 10 through 14 in particular, have been about a brother or sister that wanders away, like a lost sheep, wanders away in sin the story of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one that has strayed. This image is of a brother or sister, a fellow disciple who is wandering away from Jesus and is sinning in some way. And the whole of chapter 18 has been about how we, um, in our life with Jesus, are supposed to be humble and lowly. He calls us his little ones. So it's about taking care to not lead others astray into sin, it's about how the church needs to have the heart of the shepherd who goes after the one that has wandered away. And so Jesus, I think here, is continuing that train of thought, describing how we go after the one that has wandered away. So here's what you do when you notice your fellow disciple has started to wander off. You go to them just between the two of you. A the theologian R.T. France says here, and he's referring to chapter, or verse 15, here it is the brother's danger not any effect of his sin on me personally, which is at issue. It's out of concern for the person who is wandering, not just if they wronged you in particular. So in this chapter, Jesus is trying to commission and give his shepherd's heart to the church, commission us with his job of seeking out lost sheep. It would make to me less sense if the chapter was only about people that have wronged you and makes more sense when it's about people in your sphere of influence and in your local church who are wandering and are starting to not follow the way of Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second thing, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. I think we need to make sure that this is, uh, this instruction that we read it as um, restricted and limited to the confines of the church, those who are disciples of Jesus. Maybe that's obvious to you, but this isn't something that we do two or four people that are not followers of Jesus? Why would we hold people to a standard uh, that they have not claimed to want to follow? Paul says something similar to this in Corinthians. That phrase that the NIV and ESV use pointing out their fault or something like it, uh, the Greek word means to rebuke or correct or refute. Another version, translation of the Bible is uh, called the Bible in basic English, says to make clear to this person his error. Um, I think point out their fault sounds a bit like detached and judgmental in the way we use our language today. But the idea is that with the heart and the tact of a good, loving, compassionate shepherd, we help people see where they have wandered away from Jesus. And we'll talk more about that later. And it says, uh, just between the two of you. Um, Each Bible translation I read translates that phrase a little differently. It's kind of a a funky phrase in Greek, but the idea is that this meeting is in private and in person. Uh, Jesus wants to protect his sheep from unnecessary shame by having immediately a ton of people that kind of know their dirty laundry. So it should start with the brother or the sister who notices with the heart of the shepherd, lovingly going to this sheep on their own with just the two of them. And it also needs to be in person. Um, The Bible scholar, Robert Mount says, more damage has been done by well-intentioned letters than by any other method. That's a bit of hyperbole, but no less applicable. Letters and notes and private messages and DMs are no place for this kind of shepherding work that needs to happen in the church. They may be private, but they're not in person and they're certainly not personal. I think I can safely say it is not how Jesus would want us to shepherd the church, all of us together collectively shepherding wandering sheep. This concept that we're reading about in Matthew 18 is hard enough as it is, and there's no room for the overly sensitive, easily triggered interpretation that we do when texts don't use like the right punctuation or emojis that we think they, they should include. The verse ends with, "'If they listen to you, you've won them over.' Some translations say you have gained your brother. The the sheep is now back in the flock. Verse 16, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If the person who is wandering away, sinning, doesn't listen, then you bring one or two others with you um, I like the way Eugene Peterson translates this in The Message. He says, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. Another quote from Robert Mounts says, this is not to prove the other's guilt, but to help in reconciliation. I think that's an important distinction. I cannot tell you how many times I've been involved in, uh, in some way, in some kind of dispute between Christians going back and forth in a mess of like, here's what they said, here's what they said. No, they said this, no, this is what happened. Um, And where I felt like I was left not really knowing what happened uh, or uh, who was at fault, if any of them, or both of them. And it would have been a lot easier if I just had some people with me after I had heard one side and then had people to help bring understanding and keep things honest, as we read. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. So this is the third contingency. If the first two things don't work for when a person um, in sin doesn't listen to the one of the few, Um, I have rarely seen this done. I don't know about you guys or your church history. I've rarely seen things like this. Happen, um, but the idea is that the local church—not like every Christian everywhere—but the local church that they're a part of—is informed of the person's sin and, and lack of repentance. I don't know that the intention is like a group intervention where they're like trying to convince them in that moment, but rather they're just telling the church, "Hey, brother so and so is in sin and he's not seeing things the way that we think that he should." And so you tell the church, and I think the idea is that kind of the unified collective effort of that body who has put on the loving heart of a shepherd can then kind of leverage their position in number to help this person see the error of their way. It's hard to imagine what this would look like today. Um, most of our churches are very, very big. Um, in America, we have mega churches everywhere. I think in Jesus's day, the days of the early church, it might have been a little more simple. The churches were small, they met in houses, and it would have been hard to hide something like this from your community if you're meeting in that way, and it's just easier for us to do that today. Uh, That final line, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Um, We know that pagans and tax collectors were despised by God's people in some way. Jesus is not instructing us to hate um, or despise those who will be cut off from their church because of their unrepentant sin. He's not telling us to do that, but to simply consider them as now outside of God's family, which is intense, not telling us to hate them, but he's telling us to see them as not part of this family anymore. Eugene Peterson, again, in in the message says about this verse, if he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch, confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. that's a helpful way of thinking about this. If it didn't already feel serious, I think verse 18 is when it actually gets really heavy and weighty. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. These words, binding and loosing, are um, traditional um, Jewish terms that refer to the authority of a rabbi to make a decision regarding doctrine or some type of church discipline within their synagogue. So another way of thinking of these words would be like forbidding and permitting or tying or untying a burden from somebody. So a rabbi had the authority to say like, yes, this is indeed a sin and you must not do it anymore or no, this doesn't break Torah and it is permissible. That's what those words binding and loosening mean in this context, it's about uh, the church having the ability to say, yes, this person is in sin and they need to go. So Jesus tells the church, when you have to make a decision about whether someone is in sin and wandering off and they have not repented, and then multiple have gone to them and then the church knows about it, when a church has to make that decision, Jesus is saying that He is behind that decision. This is why I'm saying it's like an incredibly weighty topic. It will be, when the church makes this kind of decision, it will be as if this decision was also made at the same time by God himself or ordained by him. Robert Mounts, I I think I left this quote off for some reason, Um, he says this, whatever decision the church makes, it will be sanctioned in heaven. That which two or three come to agree on has to do with the decision concerning an unrepentant member of the believing community. God will answer the united concern of praying people. In fact, wherever two or three come together, earnestly desiring to know the will of God, he himself will be right there with them. Again, I'm not trying to like ruin the way that you may have heard or understood these verses. I'm not trying to be a troll, but particularly verse 20 is not about how two or three people makes for a church. Maybe you've heard that phrase like you're with Your buddy in a bar like oh there's two or three of us where we're gathered in Jesus name where there's a church it's like well Jesus' presence was already with you and that's okay we don't need this verse to explain that but this passage is particularly about church discipline when someone needs to not be a member of a church anymore Jesus is saying I'm with this church in this decision-making process specifically, particularly about Jesus's presence and authority and wisdom being given to the church for the purpose of what they call binding and loosing, calling out sin in the Christian community and then acting accordingly. I think sometimes verse 19 can be taken a bit too far when it says, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I don't think that means God will do absolutely anything that two people agree God should do. Um, I think the context is specifically about the restoration or the cutting off of someone who has drifted from the way of Jesus. And it's about the authority of the church to do something about that. These last three verses like seriously take up the seriousness of the passage quite a bit. It's one thing to tell the church help out the people that are sinning, like go after them and help them see the error of their ways and bring them back. It's like, that makes sense, that's a good thing. But it's another thing entirely to say, for Jesus to say that when you do this, I'm actually agreeing with you, making this decision with you. I think it honestly brings a whole layer of added weight and seriousness to the topic. It's not something that the church should take lightly and also not something that the sinner should take lightly if the church is seeing unrepentance in you. And then there's a break in Jesus' teaching because Peter asked a question. His question marks a slight shift in the topic, um, but it's still related. Verses 15 through 20 are about restoring the wandering sinning sheep with the hopes of bringing them back in the fold. And then the next section through the end of the chapter is about preventing personal, the sins against you, personal grievances, preventing them from poisoning a church community. Verse 21, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Peter's wondering, like, how far do we take this, especially if someone sins against me? Um, there are some really interesting nerdy bits about the numbers and the significance of them and only if you're interested will I tell you what what they are because it doesn't have a place right here right now but the gist is that to be a member of Jesus's family requires unlimited forgiveness that's the idea that Jesus is getting at if you want to be a part of Jesus's family especially when people wrong you Forgiveness needs to be unlimited. There is no limit to how many times we can and must do that. Jesus' number essentially just meant over and over again. And then he tells a story to illustrate why this is so. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. I'm not going to go line by line through that story, but here's the bullet points. There's a first guy owes his master something to the tune of like $10 million. It's meant to be a hyperbolic number. It's a ridiculous amount of money that no one had any business being able to pay back. He says to his master, have patience with me, meaning give me some time, and I'll figure out a way to get you $10 million. The master takes pity and cancels the debt this debt that he would never have been able to repay, he would have died in prison or something. It's this beautiful picture. The word for pity, when it says he took pity on him, is this word that means that the master felt this like visceral, deep, loving compassion in his gut for his servant. But then the story gets ugly. This servant whose $10 million debt was forgiven turns around and chokes the guy who owes him 20 bucks. His servant, like him, said, give me time. I'll pay you back. He could have done that with a day's work. But this guy refuses and throws him into prison. And then the other servants, the servants of the forgiving master, saw all this happen, and they went and told him. And the kind, good master gets serious and goes to this unforgiving servant of his and calls him out. He says, you should have had mercy on this tiny debt that this other person owed you since I had mercy on your massive debt. So the master sends this unforgiving servant to prison until he can pay back the debt. And then we read in verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Just as the master put the unforgiving servant in jail, so will the father do to those who withhold forgiveness from their brothers and sisters. This is huge. It is a matter of life and death. I'm gonna say some things that you might have questions about and that's okay, we can talk about it, but unforgiveness won't make you lose salvation. It means that you were never saved in the first place. If you can't release someone from the debt that they owe you for how they've wronged you, if you can't do it, it means that you have not had your debt forgiven. Because if you have had your debt forgiven, you your heart will be moved on a, maybe a certain timeline, it's not instant, but your heart will be moved to release someone from the debt that they owe you. It is simple and it is intense and I wish that there was a way to kind of skirt around how intense it is, but Jesus has already said it before, like in Matthew 5 or 6, if you Don't forgive others their trespasses. Your Father in heaven will not forgive yours. We can only dance around these words of Jesus so many times. So when it comes to the church and sin and restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness, I'll just say the stakes are high. This is very, very important to Jesus and we have some stuff to think about. Um, So I'm gonna start with some thoughts about what we've studied and I'm gonna go back to verses 15 through 20 primarily. I wanna talk about those, um, the steps of confrontation and restoration um, that Jesus laid out. I have three thoughts. One, the church does not do this. We avoid it. That's my first thought. Number two, when we do it, we usually do it poorly. And three, when the church does it well, it is, beautiful, but still really hard and really sad. So the first thing, the church does not do this, we avoid it. I wanna kind of think about why, why I think that's true and, and what happens when the church avoids doing Matthew eighteen fifteen through 20 as Jesus has laid it out. I think that's the biggest problem with this is that we just don't do it, we avoid it. Um, it's far more likely that a person in the church goes uh, unnoticed or unknown and wanders away. Couple reasons, one, the mega church. Um, It has dominated the church scene in our country for a long time and there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but it is really easy to not be known, um, certainly to not be known well enough. Um, It's easy to slip in and slip out without being noticed. And so if you're not involved in people's lives or involved in their lives and they in yours, it's hard to know, you wouldn't know if something was going on. In their life, and sadly, this mentality is not limited to big mega churches anymore. That can and does infiltrate our little tiny baby church, where we can want to slip in and slip out and not be noticed and not be known, truly known how we're doing in our life. I think that's one of the reasons why we don't, we do not do this. Um, second reason is that we live in a culture that where being judgmental is like one of the worst things that you could be. And maybe also live in a Christian subculture where being legalistic is one of the worst things that you could be. So in our attempts to not be judgmental and to not be legalistic Christians, we've given a real wide berth to this thing that Jesus has laid out for us to do and we do nothing. Noticing maybe that our brothers and sisters are struggling and in sin and we're just like, I don't know, I don't know if that's for me to do. I think Jesus says, yes it is. Third reason, I think we can separate like blatant sinful actions from sinful character, sinful characteristics. We more readily recognize like the intensity and like the damage of sinful actions, like drunkenness or unfaithfulness in a marriage or outbursts of anger or violence or something. We can say like, wow, that's, that's a problem. Um, but we'll often notice patterns of someone's character if, if they're involved in your life and you know them will notice patterns of someone's character, but maybe fail to call it sin. Like, man, they, they complain about everything or they're always negative. They're really kind of, every time we get together, they're just talking about other people and they're not saying nice things or gossiping. That guy's kind of a jerk. There's always some kind of conflict with that person. They're always mad at somebody. They're, what they say on social media, like, I feel like it doesn't reflect the heart and the way of Jesus. Things like that. Things that we think all the time about people and they're not like the big blatant sins, but I think they are sins of character and they are sin issues too. Fourth reason is maybe because we don't really truly at a core level believe that ongoing sin is damaging to a believer. It's hard to work up the courage to go after a lost sheep if you're like, I don't really know if they're all that lost, if they're really wandering that much. It's not that dangerous out there to be all, all by yourself, is it? <laughs> the danger of sin is abstract, but it's real. So if you saw someone who you knew couldn't swim, a child or something, wading into a lake, you wouldn't worry about being judgmental or, like, questioning your decision to go out there and help them. You would know, like, that's really unsafe and i got to go help. Uh, If you saw someone walking into a building that was on fire and they didn't know that it was on fire, you would stop them and help them. And when it comes to people wandering in sin, I think our avoidance can uh, reveal a lack of confidence in the fact that it actually is harmful for people. And we are afraid to make that claim and to think that confidently. A couple of things happen uh, in the church when we avoid this, a lot of things the first thing that came to mind is just gossip. When we're not clear about what is sin and what isn't and if when we're not upfront about it, doing it kind of the way Jesus lays it out, we talk about people in sin rather than helping them. And then eventually they just kind of fizzle away from the church like, where'd they go? I don't know, something was up. Yeah, I felt that way too. But then all of a sudden they're just gone and we didn't take a proactive approach like Jesus outlines here. The other thing that happens is, uh, people continue to hurt themselves in their sin. If sin is in fact damaging to a person who's attempting to follow Jesus and they're stuck in it and they're lost and we just don't do what Jesus is telling us to do, we're allowing those people to harm themselves. And then the last thing, perhaps the most common I think uh, that happens is just uh, a numbness in your shepherd's heart that God wants you to have. He wants us to have a tender, compassionate heart, the heart of the one who would go after the one, leaving the 99. The tender, compassionate heart of the shepherd is what he wants us to have. And if we repeatedly notice a wandering sheep and notice someone who's like kind of drifting away, if we notice and do nothing, and then we notice and we do nothing, and we notice and we do nothing, we're creating a calloused, numb heart. So one, I think the church rarely does this. And also sometimes when the church attempts to do it, we do it poorly. Um, And I think there's one main reason. It's that we are trying, the church is trying to be a Matthew 18, 15 person. They're trying to do this, but they have not become a Matthew 18, one through 14 person before doing it. So Matthew 18 verses one through 14, describes the heart and the attitude that Jesus wants his church to have. He wants us to be his humble little ones, he calls us. A people not concerned with status, that's verses one through five. People careful not to lead others into sin, that's verses six through nine. And a people who have the heart of the shepherd, Jesus, who goes after the one lost sheep, that's verses 10 through 14. That's the kind of caring, compassionate, tender shepherd's hearts that he wants all of us to have, not just pastors, all of us. And I think, the verses 15 through 20 process goes wrong. This confrontation, restoration goes wrong when it's done without the heart that Jesus has described in verses one through 14. It describes a kind of care and tenderness that should permeate the way someone does this process of confrontation and restoration. And this, again, could just be my experience. I feel like I've noticed that the boldness that is required to confront someone in sin happens to be found also in people who maybe lack the tender shepherd's heart. So a pastor or a leader or a church is they're trying to help. They're trying to do the right thing. They go in hard with guns blazing. They're like, I'm not afraid to call someone out on their sin as a kind of a, a virtue of their own. And then sometimes they do damage in that process when their their speech isn't laced with love and compassion and humility like Jesus would want us to. One of my professors and mentors from seminary, said something, I was going through a hard church time, most of you know what that is, but um, he said something to me that I will never forget. He said, Christians in the context of church kind of wounding and hurt each other, he said, Christians uh, sin more out of virtue than vice. When Christians think they're doing the right thing, calling out sin, holding fast to a doctrine or a theological position or trying to help someone, doing something good, those are good things. It is so easy to sin in that process. When you think like I'm holding my ground and I'm trying to be faithful to Jesus and everything else be damned, that's when sometimes people get hurt. Like a well-intentioned, theologically accurate bull in a china closet of a wandering person's life, we do damage. So when we do this, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, we have to be filled to the brim with the Spirit of God, covered in lots of prayer and discernment, and then just like drenched and dripping in compassion, the heart that our shepherd wants us to have. And that is the only context where this probably could go well, and it still might not go well. The last thing, uh, it's not my last thing, I don't know why I said that, the next thing, When it happens well, it's beautiful, but still hard and sad. Happens well can mean two things according to this passage. One, the person is restored. Or two, the person is no longer part of the Christian community. That is an acceptable outcome when a person is not repenting and not listening to Jesus and his people. Um, I have two stories. I wish that was more like, closely involved in them, but there are two stories that are really good that I've um, sort of a part of one of them and I'll I'll just tell you them. Is a time where it went well, ended sad, but went right, uh, if that makes sense. So I was a guest teacher at this church um, years ago now. And before, um, in the months or weeks before I went to teach there, their lead pastor had an affair with someone and uh, basically left his family and was with this um, other woman. And their elders had approached the guy, I think one-on-one, maybe a couple of them. And then all the elders of that church go to the guy and the guy was um, unrepentant, not willing to um, admit his wrong, not willing to leave this person that he was now with. Um, So I show up like on a really heavy Sunday to teach And the elders walk up to the stage and they say, this guy, pastor so-and-so is refusing to listen to us. He is no longer a part of this church family because he's not repenting and he's refusing to end that relationship. And they invited the church to pray for that guy's family, his wife and his kids. And I was just like shattered, just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this has happened. And I also simultaneously thought, this is one of the most beautiful things I've seen for what I saw was elders of that church, the pastors of that church drenched in compassion and broken-hearted, like shepherds for this guy who was in unrepentant sin and was now forced out of their um, Christian community. In my opinion, it's something that it happened well, it happened right, and it was still like incredibly sad and heavy. Another story um, from another pastor friend of mine, he was a pastor, one of the elders. There was this person who was kind of on staff at a church um, and s- kind of some type of uh, pastoral presence for their church. And she basically um, was just very, very rude and manipulative to a lot of people in their church. And they, these elders kept hearing story after story of this person who was kind of um, sinning against people in their church. And uh, they went to her one-on-one. I think some other people in the church had gone to her and then the elders hear about it. So they do a few on on one and try to tell her what's wrong, not listening, not repenting. So then they tell the church, this person is in sin, not repenting, is not choosing to see how they're in sin. And so she's not a part of our church family anymore. And that was the thing that clicked for this person. And she later came back to the elders of that church and said, I felt completely naked and also I've never felt more loved because that church offered the hand of like, if you repent and come back, like we'll, we'll have you. And she didn't have that position on that staff anymore, but was welcomed and, for, and forgiven and, and restored back to that community of uh, Jesus followers. So the church avoids this a lot and it can go really poorly, but it also can happen well. And it is a heavy, beautiful thing when it does. couple final things. First, what I think this means for our church. Um, It has really cemented uh, the importance of community for me. And I know that is like the buzziest of buzzwords that ever buzzed. Uh, People have to know you if this is going to happen and see you regularly. You guys are here and that's wonderful. But people have to like, actually know what's going on in your life, which means you have to share and tell them what's going on or be around people enough so that they can have a sense when something's off. I think that that is something that the Spirit of God does all the time in churches that are ready for it is if you're around and people know you, sometimes you don't have to ask, you just kinda know like something's off. That is like 100% the way that has always happened for me when I've seen people, friends in my life in the church, they're around and I'm like, Ooh, there's something there's something going on here. And I have ignored it so many times and it has been catastrophic in some in some cases where I've seen and I'm like, I oh, know something's off. And I left it alone. I was afraid, timid. Who am I who am I to judge? Maybe nothing's wrong. And I didn't do anything. Um so our our hope for every single person that decides, you know, we want to come to Valley Church, this is where we wanna worship Jesus and uh, it needs to be more than sitting in the pew eventually. Um, That's my hope and my dream for you is that you would integrate into the community, not because we want more people in communities, but because you need that if someone is going to be able to help you stay in the flock and God needs to use you to help someone else stay. So community is important to us for that reason. Second thing, this is not only my job. It is all of our job. Ideally, I would work myself out of the job by equipping all of us to be these kinds of shepherds. And it is really easy for in this, again, it's kind of the evangelical megachurch climate that we want to defer this type of thing to staff, to people that are professional Christians. And that has got to die, that needs to be dead and buried and put away forever, that notion. This is something that a whole church has to do for each other. And again, that's something that we hope takes place in community, where you don't even have to, I don't even have to know what's going on, you guys can shepherd each other in that context. So this is not only my job, it is all of our job. Kind of want to go over some like, I guess, practical advice on how this can work. Matthew 18, specifically the steps of restoration. Is this a really long sermon? I think it is. Nice. <laughs> I thought it might be. How do you know if you should or shouldn't do something? How do you, what do you, who's considered wandering, sinning, lost, whether or not you should say something, if that's for you to do or not? Uh, I just want to say the, the first thing has to be listening to the Spirit of God and discernment. That should be your first step is, I don't know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold back and wait, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna listen. That's probably the most important thing that you can do. Um, I think that this, if you're asking that question, should I, should I not? Is this, is this person considering wandering? Um, I think the, most, the next most important thing is, it's gotta be someone that's like in your community, in your local church, your sphere of like influence and meaningful friendship. What I mean is that this is not something to be done to a stranger or someone that you haven't seen in decades or something like that. Um, And I think this should be uh, someone who to your knowledge is still um, trying to be a Jesus follower. Like maybe they're struggling, but I don't know that we need to do Matthew 18, 15 through 20 for someone that's like denounced Jesus 20 years ago and you're like, hey, I just wanted to point out some sin in your life. Like, yeah, I don't care anymore. So why would we do that? Um, How should that conversation go? I don't know if any of you have ever had a conversation like this. Um, Unfortunately, there's no script. Matthew 18, 15 says, point out their faults. So you could try that. Hey, I'd like to sit you down and point out your faults, see how that goes. Um, I've mentioned this before, but whatever this means to you, I just want to like put the word picture in your head so that if you ever have to have this conversation, you'll think about this that you should walk into that conversation dripping, literally drenched, soaked, and dripping in humility and compassion. Not timidity, but humility and compassion. And then also ask questions. And don't assume, don't accuse. Hey, this has seemed a little off to me. Can you, can you tell me more about that? Or hey, I heard this was going on in your life. I didn't know. I don't want to believe it. You know, can you tell me is that true? Um, Something like that can be very helpful. Last thing, I want to end on a downer just, you know, in case it got too cheery in here. Jesus tells us to forgive those who sin against us over and over again, and we must. But that doesn't mean that these relationships can and must always be restored to how they were before Uh, the sin takes place, in personal conflict particularly. Sometimes sin breaks relationships in an irreversible way. And we still release people from the debt that they owe us. We take our hurt and our frustration to the Lord. We trust Him with those who have hurt us. That's, I think, the heart of forgiveness is that you hand someone over to the Lord to handle what they've done because it's not yours to do. Um, But some friendships relationships just will not be restored. And that doesn't mean that forgiveness didn't happen, it's just reality. It's hard to accept that tension but we we have to be okay with that, that sometimes the wounds are so deep and so complex that we can forgive and then there needs to be a parting of ways. Forgiveness in the church should just be one of the most radical things about us. It should be free, it shouldn't cost anyone anything, it doesn't, it should be frequent, and then it should be just strong. Jesus' commission and instruction in Matthew 18 has been clear to us that we need to be humble, lowly people who take care of those in our church community, being careful not to lead each other into sin, having the courageous and compassionate heart that Jesus has as a shepherd to go after those among us who are wandering, and then to have the wisdom to do it with gentleness, and then to have the readiness to forgive people over and over again. And this, like, of anything, has got to be the hallmark characteristic of the church. Not that we agree on everything, not that we're happy and kind all the time. We should be loving, that's another hallmark characteristic. But we need to be able and ready and willing to extend um, forgiveness that does not make sense to people. Unlimited forgiveness. This is a gospel picture of the love uh, and forgiveness that Jesus has extended to to us and the world needs to see that. Um, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this um, profound passage that we have read through and we barely scratched the surface of um, what it means for us as a a church. Um, And God, I just wanna pray for anyone in this room, or for anyone um, known by someone in this room who is wandering. As I'm talking about this, if there's a person who is just like, ah, so and so. My discernment bells are ringing, and I just feel like something's going on, something's off. Um, I just pray that this Valley Church, those in this room, would have um, courage and compassion to be a shepherd. Would you give us courage and compassion to be the kind of shepherd that you are to help bring people back to you? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.